You're listening to an Mpavilion podcast. Conversations about design and the world we live in. For more, visit our archive at mpavilion.org and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. There we go. Hello. Womanjika. Welcome and come with purpose, everyone. Shout out to the students over in the background there. Looks like you guys have been having an awesome time. How good is it to be out of a classroom on a Friday? My name's Matt, so I'm the founder of Regeneration Projects, and we're a B Corp uh, consultancy based here in the broader uh, Melbourne region. And uh, I guess today in creating a space for a, a conversation around the intersection between business, uh, biodiversity and the Birrarungar or the river country that is now Melbourne, um, we, I guess, begin by acknowledging those connections to the place of where we come from. And I think sometimes in our work we're talking about regeneration and rekindling uh, as opposed to harm minimization and things. And for me, maybe an example of that is if we look um, behind us here towards the city. And this area, I was looking at a recent um, painting probably from the early 1800s, and this was actually a beautiful lagoon. And so you have all manner of, of water birds and, and wildlife here. And so the memory of those ecosystems, the memory of the First Nations Kulin people, the Boomerang and Bunurong people, uh, Wurundjeri, Woiwurrung and the other uh, language groups of the Kulin Nation are also really, really hard to see. So the opportunity that we have through our work is to rekindle those stories and the memory and, that, and create this intersection of the regeneration of, of ecosystems, the regeneration of, of culture, and also the regeneration of economies through a different uh, approach. And, and that's the spirit uh, that we want to bring in. Talking about, okay, now that we've got a, a global biodiversity framework spinning out of um, Montreal and, and Kunming, uh, that we can localise that conversation and bring a small group of change makers together and hear what you're each working on, um, but also allow space for, for collective dreaming and thinking forward as well. So we talked earlier around what can we do to support our ecosystems, um, but also... What's our role in that bigger international story? How can we can support, listen to, work with, learn from, and elevate other regions around the world that are navigating, welcome, uh, this transition as, as well? So uh, I guess I'll just share a little bit more context to I explain a couple of key memories and then we'll pass around and everyone can introduce themselves and we can bring everyone into the, the conversation. It's not meant to be a formal thing, so everyone that's in the circle has a voice. Um, and then we have some special guest speakers that we've invited to, to share some, you know, some specific examples, but welcoming everyone to lean into that space. So um, one of the, the peak moments uh, at COP15 was uh, supporting a collaboration between an initiative that we call the Ranger Roundtable. So the Thing Green Lion Foundation founder, uh, Sean, here in the circle with us, 
uh, and the International Ranger Federation, the Universal Ranger Support Alliance, teamed up with the World Bank and the Global Environment Facility to really think about, okay, what are the role of rangers as frontline planetary health workers in, in this work? So you can go through the global biodiversity framework as it stand, stand, stood before uh, the event and after the event, and you will not find a word there referring to rangers or necessarily frontline workers. And what's interesting about that is that we think about increasing investment, we think about increasing work, we have to think about those people that are doing the work on the, on the ground. And fortunately, there is that increase of awareness in Indigenous and, and communities and their active role in this space. But it seems like there is this space and this bridge that we need to, we need to uh, gap, a gap that we need to bridge, sorry. There's other things locally that we're involved in, as such as working towards a swimmable Birrarung uh, Yarra River by 2030, uh, working with Willow as she perfectly works into the space on a, a uh, I guess, a bioregional fund, a two bays future fund that's kind of connect businesses to the greater um, two bays bioregion that we have, so Port Phillip Bay, Nerm and, and Western Port Bay uh, and uh, their extended catchments. So when businesses are in the city here and... Uh, they're overlooking the river. We've we've got you know major events and Moomba coming up. A lot of operators have got this relationship with these things. But um, how are people giving back? What do we do to actually leave these ecosystems and invest in them so that in the long run and in the short term they're better than we found them? And does that mean that we have a lagoon here, uh, you know, uh, re-emerging uh, and you know potentially swimming places as part of that? So allowing ourselves to look back, to look forward. Uh, and so, you know, I was here on, on Sunday and, and maybe I'll, I'll leave it here and, and pass uh, the mic uh, around so that we can, we can connect more. But I was here on Sunday with uh, Nawi, Dr. Carolyn Briggs, senior um, boomerang elder, and her daughter uh, Jara, an amazing First Nation artist, and a, a colleague Troy, um, and we were talking about this augmented reality experience called 64 Ways of Being. And so if we just catch a tram a short way up the road down to the, the junction and then uh, step to a small circle surrounding a, a, a tree called the Nagi tree. And Nawi describes it as being like one of the oldest living residents, you know, in, in the broader region. It's at 300 to 500 years of age. It's watched a lot of things, including some of the traditional ceremonies of the old people in, you know, in this place. But here they are putting images and putting stories and putting uh, an image of what the future could look like through digital augmented reality experiences. And so then you walk this experience down towards Nernport Phillip Bay. And I think that's, you know, when we're talking about these global biodiversity policies and we're thinking about the role of business, I think the role of business is to make what they're painting in that augmented reality experience a reality. How do we do that? And so that our art is actually this this kind of directional cultural thing that points us into where we're going. So allowing that space for us to dream forward and to make the unreal real and the impossible seem normal, business and nature in one conversation, who would have thought, gosh. But here we are having some amazing businesses uh, doing, this, doing this work and working at these intersections and that's what we're here to listen to. So I'm going to move around in an anti-clockwise direction passing across to uh, Ari from Pollination. And uh, I guess what we might do, just as a simple intro, is just your name, your organisation, everyone in the circle. And I guess when you think about that intersection of business and nature or business and country 
here, here, like right here. What's one thought that comes to mind? Hello. Ah, son. I was hoping you'd go the other way. I'm not feeling quite ready to... <laughs> I know, I know. I was sort of waiting for a seed of inspiration. But I'll start with me. Um, I'm the... thank And thank you for that beautiful introduction. It was really wonderful to envision this place in the future and just sit in that moment. Um... And also I want to just acknowledge country and, and the potential to regenerate um, being so important. But my name's Ariadne Kosi of Pollination Foundation. We are relatively young, I guess. Um, pollination is a business that was formed three years ago with a bold vision to support the transition to net zero nature positive future. The company um, started with 12 of us. There's now over 200 people based in all sorts of countries and places around the world. Head office in Sydney and London and Chicago and Washington. Um, the, the kind of core focus of the business has really been uh, advising clients, mainly businesses and governments and investors, finance sector on their transition strategies. Um, and then we're increasingly kind of working with and finding those clients that we have a strong values alignment with to develop new projects and solutions um, and building out investment platforms as well. So we kind of like to think about the whole system is a one solution engine, which easy to say. <laughs> and we launched with a not-for-profit arm. We launched a for-profit business with a not-for-profit arm, which has also been a really interesting journey. Um, how do you share equity and value when you're in a startup phase of a business? So it's been um, a great and exciting journey over the past three years. So I moved to Melbourne from the Kimberley where I spent over 25 years working alongside Aboriginal people uh, building out the Kimberley Ranger Network and the network of Indigenous protected areas across the region and then landed in Melbourne to COVID. So it's been an interesting personal journey for me and my family too. So that's me. Um, the foundation, Pollination Foundation, is we're really focused on bringing community into the heart of climate and nature solutions. And as we start to kind of advise clients and corporates and governments on their transition strategies, how do we make sure there's a just transition and that's equitable? Um, and how do we create a bridge between what businesses are thinking and the solutions that communities hold. And I guess the importance of creating the space to have shared conversations and co-design those solutions together, I'm seeing as being the most important thing for us to focus on um, because obviously business are wanting to reduce their impact and they're needing a lot of certainty about kind of how they do that. 
but that certainty isn't really there because it's a pathway that we haven't yet created. And so bringing together diverse people to have those conversations and design those solutions, I think, yeah, is an area for us to really lean into. Um, I'll stop there. Hi, um, my name's Rachel um, and I'm from Intrepid Travel. Um, I won't do too much talking. I'll let Susanna, my colleague, um, who's uh, our main speaker today, tell you a little bit more um, about our work. But I suspect um, many of you might be familiar with Intrepid. We're a global travel company, um, but you may not be as familiar with the work that we're doing kind of in the corporate advocacy space. Um, my role is in our global communications team. So I work alongside like our purpose team and other parts of the business to communicate kind of that story around what we're doing. Um, the travel sector is obviously, you know, rebuilding, but it's also one that is has massive problems uh, that it needs to solve in terms of its impacts um, in different parts of our world. Um, and so we have Susanna leading our efforts uh, in that space. So I work very closely with her and um, it's wonderful. So I'll let her tell you a little bit more about her work. No, thank you very, very much, Rachel. I think it's working, yeah. So yeah, I'm very fortunate to lead Intrepid's climate work um, out of Melbourne, so I'm Melbourne-based, um, but it's a global role too. But I think it's also really important when we look at Intrepid that the humble beginnings were back in 89 and that our founders are really passionate about creating change through the joy of travel and the experience to connecting to destinations and people. Um, Intrepid has been carbon neutral since 2010, which definitely inspired me to join them back in 2019. We became a B Corp in 2018. And then in 2020, we actually declared a climate emergency just around the time of the mega fires here in Australia, which the tourism declares a climate emergency movement, which is a global movement, which um, had a, have around 400 members. And our climate emergency has, seven, has a seven-point commitment plan. And one of them at the time was about committing to a science-based target. That means setting an emission reduction target that is based on science, providing that North Star, how much and how quickly you need to reduce your emissions across your operations and your broader value chain. And in the same year, that didn't have very many highlights, especially for the travel sector, we actually got verified by the science-based target initiative. And the word that I connect um, with this area is really, I cycle this way every morning when I go to the office and come back. So for me, that is beautiful calmness um, to connect with nature. Thank you. Hi. Um, hello, everyone. So as you were speaking, I was thinking about being in the botanical gardens a little while ago and overlooking Melbourne and having a sense of that um, the city was in the park rather than the park is in the city. And I think that's a, it felt so promising as a way that maybe we'd relive and reimagine cities to be biodiverse cities. <laughs> Sorry, that's a personal joke. Um, <laughs> and I think, um, I'm a designer by background, and so I think in diagrams, not words. Words always come second for me, but there's a diagram I have at the moment in my head of that currently our, our systems are, the economy is outside of nature and nature is within nature, and I think what we're all trying to do is help that reverse 
that nature is what we are within and the economy is within that in a embedded nested circles. And that experience of seeing and feeling what it could be that we want it to work towards um, fills me with a lot of hope and gets me up in the morning. So, uh, yeah, I work with the Coalition of Everyone. We're looking at helping connect lots of regen places of different scales within bioregions and reorganising within bioregions for healing and regeneration. And very happy to meet the, everybody here, particularly Pollination. Uh, we've done maybe the reverse. We actually started as a not-for-profit and are now launching a purpose-owned for-profit around this idea of earth equity uh, with my co-partner, um, which is reimagining looking at ownership and uh, finance and um, governance as well. And so, yeah, working with Matt on uh, creating a bioregional future fund here and how we might actually look at a whole of place and how do we help fund the work? How do we join people and projects together and with systems conveners and leaders and help accelerate the change that we're all wanting to see? Thanks. Thank you. Um, my name is Charity. I sound really loud, don't I? <laughs> my name is Charity and I work for Regen Melbourne, um, which is a not-for-profit looking to, um, we're pursuing, call it wild and ambitious projects that transform cities in purpose of, in service to regenerative outcomes. So um, a lot of our work is, prob is um, the North is like trying to get into that um, safe and just space when you think about planetary boundaries and donut economics. I'm not going to go into the details of it, but like that's what we're doing. Like, um, and like using collective impact to see, to achieve um, those regenerative um, outcomes. Um, I think when you were talking about the word or what do I think of when um, it's indigenous nature and business, right? And I was like, my gosh, they're like completely intertwined. I am curious, it was curiosity because I think there's a tension there that needs to be understood and I'm picked and balanced. And I'm curious what that looks like, about what that looks like and what, yeah, so curiosity um, for me. Hi, Charity. Um, my name's Marushka. Lovely to meet you. I didn't realise we were sitting next to each other. Um, <laughs> Charity invited me along today, but we haven't met each other before. Um, I, um, I am from a social enterprise uh, called Homes for Homes. We were created by The Big Issue about five years ago. And um, I guess our purpose is to raise funding for the increase of supply of social and affordable housing. And when you think about homelessness as an issue, it's often, you know, about people and communities and bringing equity into our places. And for me, that really connects with what's happening in our environment. And we work with a lot of organisations in the private sector. And for them, sustainability is so multifaceted and as much about our people as it is about our communities and our planet. Um, so I think bringing those together in nature um, and providing opportunities for people to connect and to thrive is really what excites me about um, spaces like this and 
opportunities for the future. We'll see if it works. Yeah. <laughs> okay, thanks. Um, yeah, my name's Sean Wilmore. Um, just really happy to be here. I was pleasantly surprised when I got to Melbourne how quiet and peaceful it was here. Um, I come from the Mornington Peninsula on the Western Port side. And, um, yeah, so it's a nice space. Thanks for having us here, Matt. Um, and good to share this space with all of you. Um, I'm the founder of the Thin Green Line Foundation, which is a foundation born out of the need of rangers around the world. Um, I was a ranger myself and had no intention of starting an NGO or even being involved in that space. But the pure need of rangers around the world um, led me to forming the foundation. Uh, we lose 150 rangers uh, in the line of duty each year around the world, um, mostly murdered in the line of duty, um, accidents as well, um, Africa, Asia, Latin America, um, mostly. Um, but we support the families of those rangers, but also try and train and equip the rangers so they can also protect nature and biodiversity, which is one of the main topics here today. Um, as part of that, through that whole journey, I was also voted in by my peers to be the president of the International Ranger Federation for two terms. And so I got to represent rangers all over the world. Um, very much the focal point for me is the action part of the discussion about giving those action points for organisations to enact the COP declarations. Matt mentioned that rangers aren't mentioned in those COPs, in those outcomes, in those goals. In, in the last assessment of the previous decade, they didn't achieve one goal, one aim in the biodiversity um, declaration, not one. And in the 162 pages of assessment, they mentioned rangers twice. One of them was the range of mine in, <laughs> in the Northern Territory. And so there's a disconnect between our theories and our ideas about protecting biodiversity and our planet and actually who's going to enact them. The positive of that, there's a lot more talk about indigenous space and the fastest growing sector for employment of rangers in the whole world is indigenous rangers and women rangers. So they're two really positive links. I've just about linked to every product and person here today. Um, Intrepid Travel, uh, through the foundation, have supported our work, but we've also conducted tours to Africa for some of our supporters. We did the first one just before COVID. <laughs> um, and because of actually um, COVID, we had um, a massive Ranger Roundtable where Matt came into it, was formed because we're all saying, what are we going to do for rangers because of the, 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 the lack of tourism? Um, in Africa, Asia, and these places, that's affecting the salaries of rangers. So Ranger Roundtable was pre preliminary, a discussion about how do we support rangers, but also the threat on biodiversity from the lack of employment of local communities because tourism had failed. Um, I mentioned before that you know, we're big supporters and users of who gives a crap, so <laughs> that's great. Pollination, um, your history in the Kimberley, I've worked with the Bardi Jawa rangers, and next week we have six Indigenous women coming from the Kimberley on a leadership program. So we're working with, so there's just about links everywhere. Um, and I suppose what I'll try and delve into a bit more here is about how does a Melbourne, loosely Melbourne based, I was raised in, raised in Melbourne, uh, um, but we're based on the peninsula, but how does that connect to international biodiversity but, and Melbourne's role in that through the ranger space? So that's a summary of me. So let's get more action from these talks. <laughs> Thank you. Um, kia ora. Hello. Uh, I'm Kerry Charles. Um, I'm a, a, 
New Zealander, you can probably tell from my accent, uh, recently translated to Melbourne, um, where I'm working at the Department of Energy, Environment and Climate Action um, in, a, in a new space for the department uh, to understand, I guess, what, what state government's role is in helping to uh, support and activate um, others to, to contribute to reversing biodiversity decline. So particularly around uh, how we can support business to, to invest in biodiversity. So, so it's a really new space for the department. Um, and yeah, I guess, I guess my, my background is, yeah, I've come from New Zealand where I've worked for a decade or so in this space. Uh, so firstly, I guess, working in the space of, um, I guess, urban biodiversity and people's connection to nature, um, energizing communities and, and sort of, I guess, activating communities to uh, restore nature in, in their space with the things that, that are important to them uh, and, and working with business to create sort of pathways and, and partnerships to uh, enable business to contribute to biodiversity projects um, nationwide in, in New Zealand. So um, yeah, I guess, I guess I've, my, my passion is, is really around how to, um, I guess, work from within government to, to bring people together, so to bring uh, communities, individuals, uh, traditional owners and indigenous people more broadly and business together to, to, to co-create, uh, to think about, you know, what a, what a different future could look like, to, to work in that regenerative space and actually say, how do we, we work together with our, you know, individual uh, superpowers, our individual, you know, um, I guess roles coming from those different spaces to be able to, you know, create something different. So whether that be you know, restoring nature in cities, whether that be thinking about, um, you know, working at large landscape uh, scales um, out outside of cities as well. So I think there's a, yeah, there's huge potential in the space. I think it's really exciting. Um, and I think, yeah, if I'm, if I'm thinking of a, a word or something that comes to me from, from where we are, I think it's, um, it's going to say connection, but I think probably reconnection. So, you know, there is, uh, you know, we're, we're sitting here on the edge of a, on a river, you know, surrounded by trees, but also right on the edge of the city. Uh, and there's, there's huge connections there. There's huge potential for connections uh, that can be recreated. Um, and whether that be around imagining what the place used to be like, but also imagining what it can be like in future. What do we want our connection with biodiversity to be? You know, how do we want our, our society, our economy to be uh, giving back to nature, which is giving us so much. So I think there's, there's real potential there. And um, yeah, really excited to be, uh, you know, part of this ecosystem in Melbourne, part of these conversations and thinking about what the, the role of state government is to help to uh, create uh, that ecosystem or to help support that ecosystem. And I'll pass over to Steph, who's my colleague at DECA. Thank you, Gary. Um, so my name is Steph Stribley and I'm um, the one member of Gary's team, the biodiversity team at DECA. Um, my responsibility there is um, leading the Nature Fund uh, grant program. So it's a, a program that was established um, to encourage co-investment in biodiversity on ground action. So, um, and it's a proof of concept program where we look at, okay, trying to understand how do particular organisations focused on threatened species or landscape scale actions attract greater um, investment and thereby leveraging some of the money that government spends to uh, protect biodiversity. So, 
being quite new, a new division within the state government, our role is to try and capture those learnings and understand what more the state government can do, as Kerry said, to to facilitate um, greater, greater non-government investment in biodiversity. So we're looking at a whole range of different approaches and trying to understand, okay, is leverage better? Is community action better? Is uh, what are the most successful examples of of uh, non-government work to support biodiversity investment in in and around uh, Victoria. I think, as Matt said, like it's a it is a unique environment where people in Australia, their, our van- values are intrinsically linked to nature and to into our, our species, and and we understand the threats that are, that those species face. I think coming from a department full of marine biologists and marine ecologists and biodiversity specialists and a whole lot of different people who are intensely passionate and driven um, around their work, um, where there is a a great understanding of the different threats and actions that can be taken to protect our nature. Um, We we have environmental backgrounds. We're not business people. We don't possibly talk the language, but we are intensely interested in finding out Okay, how do we get involved in these circles and understand where um, where we can drive greater um, connections between between our boffins and and those and those experts? So, um, as a family, um, my husband and I have started a um, a business, and I think you know, someone he he comes from energy. I think he, my husband doesn't necessarily always think of their, their impact on biodiversity and in, in the type of work that they do. Um, it's, it's interesting. It needs to be, you know, embedded in everything that we do. And it's not just a, a, a carrot to be able to get communities across the line. This is something that um, is part of the work that we do. So um, it's a fascinating, you know, uh, concept to to try and start something and achieve two goals at the same time. And there's no reason why that can't happen. Um, so this place is really special to me because um, we used to live in the desert and where we lived, it was absolutely covered in limey, sort of limestoney um, cliffs and and just absolutely everything was white. Everything, the, you know, the, the cliffs, the buildings, the the gear that the men wore, everything was white. So when we touched down in Melbourne to visit family, we would come here where everything's green. Special. Thanks, Paul. Yep. Um, That's easier. Thank you. Um, Hi, I'm Bernie from Who Gives a Crap? Um, most, of us will, most of you will probably know us as the toilet paper company that exploded over COVID um, and got a lot of publicity and a, and a lot of growth. Um, for, um, for us, you know, thinking about, we're, we're thinking about um, everything from a, from a business perspective, maybe slightly different from, you know, some of the others around here. And we're, we're a profit for purpose business. Um, we donate 50% of our profits to charity to try to make the world a little bit of a better place. Um, you know, we have a, have a huge goal that 
um, by the year 2050, we want to make sure that nobody in the world doesn't have, you know, everyone has a toilet, access to a clean toilet uh, and clean drinking water. Um, and that's a huge goal for us. You know, that's our, that's our driving factor behind what we do. And we try to do that in the most sustainable way possible all the time, which is a challenge at times when you're running a business. Um, you know, our, one of our core focuses um, of the business is protection of trees. You know, we don't cut down any trees, whether they're forest or plantation, to, to make our toilet paper. Um, and that's been a, a, a driving force or, or um, you know, a, a, an ethos behind the business all the way from the very start. And that's something that we're continuing to do and we're continuing to try to, try to um, share that kind of... Um, action with other businesses and it's something that we're really looking to do now which is um, share, um, include other businesses in our sphere of influence as well and help other businesses to do you know better things around the world and we're always looking to to work with other people whether they're um, you know, government organisations or other, other profit for purpose or just profit uh, businesses as well. Um, when I, when I think about this place, I realise that I don't come in here enough. I live out in the Dandenong Ranges and beautiful treed area. Um, you know, it's where I choose to live and coming in here is a bit of an effort <laughs> at times. But when you come and sit in a place like this, um, uh, you know, and beautiful sunshine and, and this environment, there, there really are some, some great places inside Melbourne to, um, you know, get yourself reacquainted with nature. There we go. And uh, I guess it just, or it just spotlights already like the, the experience and the diversity of perspectives that we've got here and I guess a sense of uh, alignment and of course to acknowledge that there probably are people that are, are many, many people that are not in this conversation but I guess just the importance that always the small groups of people are where the power to, to enable change comes from. Like something that, that came up for me time and time again over the last couple of years in the you know lockdown Zooms and things like this, sometimes you feel like, oh, you'd create this event and it'd be a small people, a small group of people that would gather or you'd create an event and you'd get lots of people, but then you actually notice the ripple effects of those smaller ones afterwards had something about them that the bigger ones didn't. And so I guess just leaning into to that now. I guess I wanted to pass the floor back to, um, uh, to a couple of you to explore one of the key things that was, was evident at COP15. It's also evident um, directly and indirectly in the conversation here. And that's the intersection of the climate and biodiversity movement. Um, so uh, I guess it's interesting. I know in you know, conversations that we've had um, individually, we've got a state government organisation that's rebadged re and, and integrating you know, these, uh, these spheres directly at the moment. Uh, you've also got businesses that are going through recent strategy, you know, conversations and navigating this. You've got, you know, we had a conversation at the end of last year. You just come back from uh, COP27, Suzanne, and, and you're like, oh, this, you know, we're not just talking about becoming climate positive, we're also becoming nature positive. But before we start to dive into those perspectives, I want you to just, like, just think for a moment, close your eyes if you will, but just go back to 2019 when the climate strikes were happening here in Melbourne and we had hundreds you know, over 100,000 people walking through the city, majority of them young people from primary school into high school. And if you're like me and you can remember some of the expressions of their faces, I remember putting my phone up to take a, take a shot and 
I, I took it from behind me and then I pulled it back down and I just saw this look of disgust, of frustration, of anger, of helplessness from these young people. Like they just looked spent and there was this guy in a suit and he looked spent. You know, and you're looking around and you're like, shit. Like, what's, what's happening? And you, when you look into the eyes of children, they're a great indicator. We're, part of the reason that we're, we're big on creating these circular spaces um, is that one of the initiatives we start, started during uh, COVID was called the Fire Circle. And it's a space where we bring elders from First Nations and other diverse cultures together with the next generation of business leaders. And we allow that intergenerational knowledge exchange. And one of the elders talks about the children's fire. And it's about that commitment that we all have to future generations. And when Nawi, um, Carolyn Briggs uh, and other elders do a, a welcome to country, they always talk about that commitment to future gen generations, uh, to the Bubups. And so I guess just, maybe if I pass Suzanne, because we've had the conversation maybe most recently, um, if you think about how these movements are taking place in your own organisations, how are practically you're seeing this dynamic of climate and nature come, come together? And what's it like to wrestle with? Because I can imagine that's quite challenging. <laughs> oh, thank you. Thank you very much. I guess I just maybe step take one step back and just kind of speak around the tourism sector because obviously we're not in isolation as you point out. There's so many connections. So maybe just looking up the overall um, sector tourism because we really have that front row seat to the climate emergency happening. Our sector actually creates between eight to 11% of greenhouse gas emissions globally. So it's not small. Um, so, and we're really seeing these weather extremes really impacting those destinations and places where we take our customers um, to visit and to interact. But obviously it's not just a climate crisis, our sector is also massively impacted by the biodiversity crisis. Because actually when you think about it, it's actually around, um, I think I wrote it down, um, it's around, oh, second, no, I'm not fast enough. Um, Sorry, I just said a good number. Um, it's around 80% of travel and tourism goods and services are actually directly or indirectly actually connected to nature. So that's actually massive for this industry to connect it to nature. And so that's really kind of also shows the, the importance of kind of really making sure we're not working in isolation of the climate crisis, but actually seeing at the same time, this is also a biodiversity crisis. So, um, and for that reason is really why we in 2021 um, signed up to the Get Nature Positive Pledge, which really means that we wanted to elevate biodiversity in our organization and really kind of understand our impact on the biodiversity, but also on, on nature, but also what directly can we do? Obviously, we have done already in the past 12 years a lot in the climate change space. Um, we have been carbon neutral since 2010. That means we actually measure our emissions across our offices globally, but most importantly, we do it over for our product. So for our trips, we actually know exactly the kilogram of carbon dioxide emissions per passenger per day by looking at transportation, accommodation, meals, and waste. So and we have set an emission reduction target to really kind of have that North Star, how much and how quickly we need to reduce. The other thing that we're doing in that nature-based tourism space is really kind of through 
since the pandemic has really accelerating that type of product. So it's not just the famous walks, the Camino, or think about Kilimanjaro or Machu Picchu, but also just here in Australia, having really discovering these spaces to provide customers with a way to connect with nature. And especially here in Australia, we now have over 100 indigenous or First Nation products involved or experience involved in our product. Another example is um, this month, actually, the Ocean Endeavour in the Antarctica will take customers and um, scientists in connection with WWF Great Giants to kind of give our customers an opportunity to see scientists um, working on the ship um, to look into the research on whales, but also being citizen science on the ship and really take being part of the research. And one example that for me is really kind of really that I'm really fascinated by is the collaboration we have with the Blue Carbon Lab, which is sits under Deakin University, and we have a partnership together, and that means actually around it's around funding, um, so donation, which is through our non-for-profit arm, the Intrepid Foundation. And then on the other hand, as we are B Corp, we're actually offering our staff 20 hours of volunteer hours every year. So staff can use those volunteer hours to participate in citizen science days. Being a biologist, it's always fantastic to be out in the field again and to be a scientist for the day, but it's really inspiring seeing your colleagues being able to connect to land. It's The event is always of um, like starts with a welcome to country. We invite First Nation people and last time we were in Hobson Bay. It's pretty fascinating to learn more about the ecology, about the what Blue Carbon Lab is doing really around the restoration and understanding of wetlands and how it can draw down carbon. Some beautiful examples there. So let's then flip to the, the public sector and, and uh, um, Kerry, if you would like to share or, or Steph, go for it. Um, I guess just to your own experience of navigating this dynamic of climate and biodiversity through your work linked to the Nature Fund, like what's it like to grapple with that? Because like, you know, you're in, let's just, it's, it's important to recognise is that we're all kind of exploring this space. Like a lot of it, we haven't made the, you know, the, the patterns, we haven't, we're, we're creating it. There's been pioneers that have been doing it for a couple of decades, but as a mainstream conversation, it's pretty, it's pretty early on. So yeah, paint a picture for us. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. It is, um, it is early days, you know, we are still, you know, so I guess the, the public sector is still grappling with uh, with this, so I guess um, you know the the climate conversation's probably been around for a bit longer in terms of it being um, you know at the front of um, you know, political and, and public consciousness. So um, you know the the um, Victorian government set some pretty uh, ambitious climate targets and is doing a lot of work in that space. Um, while at the same time, I guess we've got the um, biodiversity work happening. So um, I think I think these they're. There are two parallel streams that I think we can bring together uh, more effectively. So, um, you know, particularly in, in some of the thinking around, um, you know, uh, the, the carbon market and, and how that's driving change, but actually how can we, um, you know, look at that from a, a biodiversity point of view as well. So, so how can we get, uh, you know, biodiversity uh, benefits or how do we, um, you know, think about um, other market-based solutions that, that work for biodiversity as well. So, um, I think I think government is is thinking about this, but it is very um, very much driven by um, by the the climate uh, 
yeah, kind of uh, emphasis, I think, uh, and, the, and the biodiversity side is, is really growing. Um, but I think you can also, you can flip it around and, and actually, um, you know, restoring biodiversity is, a, is an opportunity to, uh, you know, create nature-based solutions for climate change, to, you know, reduce our emissions, to, um, you know, mitigate uh, some of the effects of climate change. So um, I, th I think actually, you know, being able to, uh, tell the story of the importance of uh, biodiversity and nature uh, can in in the space and the ability to um, you know impact on some of the the climate challenges we have. I think is really important. Uh, there is one particular um, fund that the Decker is running at the moment uh, called Bushbank, which is around um, supporting uh, people who who are uh, playing in the in the carbon space to to also think about um, and and deliver. Um, biodiversity uh, benefits as well. So essentially, it's it's funding the the additional biodiversity benefits um, from from carbon farming. So a really exciting program there. It's uh, looking at delivering a significant amount of revegetation across the state. Uh, and so yeah, I guess I guess government's trying to think of you know what are the different innovative ways that we can encourage um, both both climate and biodiversity um, benefits. So that's that's one example. Yeah. Yeah, and it's it's great to get this kind of live as it as it's happening, uh, including the whippersnipper in the background <laughs> here, <laughs> navigating some of that biodiversity as we speak. Um, Harry and Sean, I'm going to come to you in the moment and talk about some of these international connections. But Bernie, um, you mentioned that you you know you you live in the Dandenongs, beautiful um, region, uh, but also there's that that difference between living on the out. Uh, you know the out edges of Melbourne compared to the the inner aspects. Um, one of the things that we got involved in, just as a, a, a bit of a bridge to connect locally, was supporting the Yarra Riverkeeper Association with a business partnerships program. And really, what we were trying to do is, hey, you've got this amazing grassroots organisation supporting, you know, activation through citizen science, cleanups, education, um, different restoration projects uh, along the river. And we were trying to create this conversation around, okay. Well, businesses in Melbourne, particularly purpose-driven businesses, like what's your role as part of this? Like we, whether you're walking to work and you're improving your mental health and well-being in connection to the river, whether you're using branding images of the, of the river or direct access because of your operations, there's some degree of connection that we all have. But um, it's, it's a hard conversation to start. So I'm curious, noting that kind of distance sometimes geographic and mental that we can have with our urban ecosystems if you're sitting down with a ceo or an impact manager inside you know uh, one of the boardrooms or, or an office here in melbourne how would you start that conversation of hey we've got you know the birrarung as one of our key urban ecosystems or however you want to frame it how would you put it on the table and make it relevant to them and just drawing on your own experience with who gives a crap. How, what language do you use and how would you make it compelling? Yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting question. Um, <laughs> I have to think about that for a second. Um, I think sometimes you've just got to take a look at what's on your doorstep and, and, and try to understand that, you know, um, how to how to really convince someone in a boardroom around about that, um, I'm not really sure. It's going to be, it, it's a hard one. But um, I, th I think sometimes you've just got to take a look at what around, what's around you and appreciate what's close. Um, you know, when I've heard about people talking here, quite a lot of it's been 
not local. It's been further further afield. Uh, you know, a lot of the work we, we don't, a lot of the charity work that we do is overseas, and a lot of the, um, you know, when when I think about our impact as far as biodiversity goes, it's not really Australian based. It's more overseas, and and that's that's not a bad thing. But um, I think it is taking that time just to have a look around and maybe not having that meeting in a boardroom, right? <laughs> maybe you arrange to have that meeting. I don't know, here or sitting over there in that park or something. It's not always as e that easy, but um, maybe it is about that and it's about stepping outside of that corporate environment um, and that kind of um, office-based or, or kind of virtual-based um, um, meeting space. And um, let, let's, let's go somewhere where we can feel what we're talking about and experience what we're talking about. Yeah, I mean, it's hard to have that empathy if you don't have a direct relationship with it. And maybe that is one of the challenges, of course, but also the opportunities that, that we have to reconnect. And I guess I open by talking about the 64 ways of being experienced, which uh, one of the motivations in this case that one of our First Nations elders is, is interacting with digital technologies because he realises that that's the language of the younger and future generations. And so we need to translate it, but in a similar way, we need to translate it into, you know, you talked about, you know, that, that lingo and those different things, like there is a, there's a gap to bridge. Um, another one of the gaps that we're trying to, to navigate here is this relationship between Melbourne as part of, of Earth as a whole. Um, to use uh, local language, um, we can say Parbanata uh, or, or Mother Earth across the ditch. We might say Papatuanuku. Um, but Ari, it's interesting, pollination story, you started with a small group and I'm not sure whether that was in Melbourne or whether it was in Sydney or that was further afar, but it's grown. I'm curious to understand why, what role has Melbourne, if it's Melbourne or East Coast or South East Australia, depending on where the gravity is, what role has this region had in pollination's growth and maybe Instinctively, does that point to anything that you can see more broadly that we can have as a, as a broader collective on our relationship with this international conversation? Interestingly, it was me that chose Melbourne. I was the only one based here when we started. The founder, Sydney-based and another in London, some few people in the US um, but thinking more deeply about that we now have been doing work here in Victoria Martin's been working with the state government on working through and sharing the net zero strategy we have a deep partnership with ANZ Bank who have their head office here in Melbourne um, we're starting to build a client base and have more team members here. I guess the thoughts, and maybe this isn't such a kind of, this is more a personal reflection on the discussion rather than thinking about pollination as a company and what's driving, you know, the business, is what I, I guess I'm noticing is everyone's coming to the realisation that we can't live without nature. And so it's really interesting to watch that journey happen and to realise what Indigenous people have known for millennia is that the health of country is a reflection of the health of people. And so businesses and governments and investors are just starting to actually, 
the pennies starting to drop. And so they're really grappling because, you know, the way, the way, the thinking that I was having around this, because we talked about, we had a forum yesterday and went to Sydney to talk to women in banking and finance. And the thought that I was having was this kind of um, my university lecturer, economics 101 lecturer, and having fierce debates with him about nature being an externality. And in that situation, I didn't have much power or agency as a young person because he was the professor and the kind of theory and thought leader. And I was the recipient of his knowledge. So when I was challenging him to say, we can't possibly sustain a world where nature's an externality, I didn't do so well in economics because of that damp dominant paradigm and mindset. So this is kind of, and then when I started thinking about nature, I thought, well, from a government perspective, the way that we've protected nature is to make a national park. But the way we've thought about the national parks is let's create them as recreational areas. And we'll have rangers that manage the national park so that they're nice places for us to exploit, really, to when we visit as, as camping. And, and so this has been our Western dominant mindset around our relationship to nature. It's a public good. It's managed through tenured reserves that are recreational reserves. And from an Indigenous perspective, nature is a part and we are a part of nature. And it reminded me of the Maori going to New Zealand and going to visit a sacred mountain that had uh, been enshrined as a living entity under um, New Zealand laws and the leaders there spoke about how having that recognition of nature as a living entity flipped the mindset of, okay, would you strip your grandmother down and pour pesticide all over her? Because that's what we're doing with the mountain. We're clearing it and then it's got pests and so we're wiping them out with chemicals. So if you think about that mountain as a being and the way that you're treating it, suddenly you have a whole different way of mindset. And one of the pieces that I walked away from yesterday of this discussion with women in banking, which was hosted in the beautiful Sydney Art Gallery, and so I'm thinking about the role of art, and um, we had a conversation with Black Douglas, who spoke about his Archibald Prize, and, you know, the role of art in being confrontational and allowing us to think about and take in information in a way that challenges our worldviews. And so I guess I'm sitting here thinking about the art gallery across the road and how can we use those creative spaces and visual spaces and creativity to be having more generative conversations and using new technology to create new visions of the future and engaging people in conversations around that. Because unless we get, unless we can shift these deeply held worldviews, we're not going to get to where we need to get to at the scale and the pace at which we need to be there. So. It's great to hear that young people are coming up in the conversation uh, again. And, and Sean, I might frame my question um, to you uh, around that. 
Thin Green Lime Foundation has been around for, for many years now um, and you were responding to a specific, you know, time and culture and there was in something, you know, going on. Um, but naturally you're going to be seeing that next generation of climate strikers and ecological leaders and entrepreneurs coming through. What advice would you have for them in, you know, spotlighting the, the role that Melbourne and this region can have in kickstarting their enterprises? And, and what are some of the lessons, maybe the challenges of being based here, you know, and doing international work, but also the benefits of being based here and having that international impact? Yeah, <coughs> sorry. Uh, thanks, Matt. Um, so much thought going on, synapses moving everywhere. I mean, just to touch on the art piece first here, I'd encourage young people to use that art expression. One of my favourite art pieces, and I should find out who the artist is, was actually in Sydney and it was a painting of a shopping trolley going to the edge of a cliff and inside this shopping trolley was all of humanity um, and there were kings at the top with guards around them and there was one last orange tree with the last orange and there was a seedling someone was trying to protect, I'll assume that was a ranger, um, but the massive humanity was underneath and it was and people were arguing with each other in this shopping trolley, but it was all going to the edge of the cliff. <laughs> and so I suppose, yeah, art, thanks for that just little synapse there, that remembrance of art and its power. We've used music a lot in Thin Green Line to get a message across without beating people across the head. A lot of musicians have aligned with Thin Green Line over the years. Melbourne musicians like Gautier and uh, Tex Perkins and... Um, even had Paul Simon and Led Zeppelin sign guitars for us and, and it doesn't have to be all hard stuff. So um, for young people getting involved, working internationally from Melbourne, just get used to the different time clocks around the world. There'll be lots of early mornings and late nights if you want to work internationally on, on, those, on those things. But it, I suppose at the end of the day you will feel like giving up. I felt like giving up many times. Probably everybody who does this purpose type work feels like it's a bit hopeless at times. Uh, I suppose what I, I would do is reflect to a, an urban biodiversity story to, that gives hope for young people, but all of us. And I was actually walking through a park in London with one of our, well, our main ambassador, Dr. Jane Goodall. And I had said to Jane, let's go for a walk through the park. The flowers are beautiful today. And she said, I'm busy, I can't, I've got so much to do. I said, okay, you're Jane Goodall. And then about an hour later, she said, Sean, let's go for that walk. And so while we're walking, we're talking about serendipity um, and what gives you hope. So serendipity, like when Thin Green Lines needed something to happen, someone pops up at the right time. And I, I asked Jane, does this happen to you? She said, every day. And she explained it as if it's, once you join the network of people trying to do purposeful things in, in life and you commit to it, and it's hard graft, it's not easy. You've got to get off your bum, you've got to move, you've got to strive, you've got to fail. <laughs> but once you connect in, she said, it's like a network of people you connect with. And here we are, a network of people that I've had vague connections with some and direct connections with others, but here we are connecting. And then all of a sudden, some opportunity will pop up and together you move forward to the next step. So we talked about that. The next topic was about hope, what gives us hope for the future. Now, this isn't an urban park we're walking in. Beautiful flowers, there's a duck pond somewhere up there. And we said, let's walk towards that pond. And as we're talking about what gives us hope, we were stopped by the sight of five tradies in fluoro vests in the duck pond. And they looked out of sorts. There was a sign that said, Rangers only. 
And at that time, I was the president of the International Ranger Federation, so I thought, I can go in. Um, and Jane's Jane, one of the premier conservationists on the planet. But what happened was really amazing. These, these guys walked out and they had a bucket. And we just saw the tail end of what was happening. There was a mother duck and several, several ducklings. And this guy walks up to us and says, as bright as you could be, suppose you're wondering what we're doing in here. And I said, yeah, we are. What's going on? And he said, well, like there's these little ducklings walking across the road near our building site. And we rang the Royal Society for protection of birds, and they said they were too busy. So just leave them there. But they're going to get run over. So, like, you know, we put them in a bucket, and we came to the park, and we released him into the park. as a wetlands, just like here, like a little pond. And he turns to Dr Jane Goodall, and at a lesser note, me, the president of the Rangers, and says, because we've all got to do our bit for conservation, don't we? And Jane and I just looked at each other and said, there's hope. So even though the official organisation who was charged with the role of protecting those birds was overwhelmed and understandably probably giving it a spring, overwhelmed, inside these tradies with no formal training, they knew the right thing was to protect nature, was to protect biodiversity. So I'd suppose my message then, looping it back to the message to young people is, you'll feel like giving up, but don't lose hope because inside everybody is that kernel of truth and knowledge that you just have to open up and, and let it raise out of each individual in society. And you can be part of that. Yeah. Beautiful story. Thank you for, for sharing, Sean. And, and if you might pass the, the mic to Charity, I'm, I'm going to put you on the spot a little bit here. Oh gosh, I love that story. From the, from the little, little ducks that we can imagine, you know, popping into that pond there or that pond there or the future lagoon that we're working on. <laughs> exactly. Um, no, but one of the, the connections that, that we have um, and that's present in this conversation is working towards uh, the swimmable Birurung uh, Yarra River by, by 2030. And uh, my involvement, along with many others across the city, um, has been going on for, for many years and heavily influenced by seeing what's happening in international cities, in Copenhagen, in Zurich, uh, in, in Oslo, in, in New York. They're working towards a floating, filtering swimming pool. The, their city has got behind them in that. And when you bring it up here and you say, we're going to go swimming in the Yarra by 2030, we're going to have riverbank bars maybe by the time the Com Games comes and they look at you and they think you're crazy, like some of you are thinking now, but now you're smiling. Behind the smile is like a little bit of craziness. But um, as part of that journey, we've been grappling with this um, different ways of working and learning from Indigenous, you know, knowledge systems and elders. And, and uh, recently we, had it, we sat down with a, a couple of, with an elder and, and his partner, and there was a, a lesson that we learned around timing about that. And I just thought, just relating, we actually came here for a walk afterward. We got a serendipitous park, by the way, <laughs> where someone already had a four-hour ticket that, that ended up in our laps. But could you just share a, a brief testimony of that lesson as you saw it, of that exchange, and maybe the collision of what the Western mind might think about when we go on this journey of of business and country working closer together, and then what we experience, and maybe a, uh, an invitation to see from a different perspective. Yeah, thank you for that. Um, 
my only caveat and context to all of this is that I've got an enviro um, environmental engineering background and I've got lots of project and program management experience. So that's, I'm setting the scene. Um, so we go to this meeting and of course I am like, we got timelines, you know, we want to do all this incredible stuff. We've had a design forum last year where we're like, okay, Melbourne, there are all these different actors, again, sorry, context, there's like different actors, businesses, community groups, um, government agencies re represented at our design forum. So we like oh, what are the barriers to making the Birarang Swimble again? How do we pull these levers? What can we do? What initiatives can we roll out? So we're ready to go, you know? And then we sit down um, with a traditional elder and then I realize it's just not as linear as I'm used to. I'm used to, you do this so that you can do this and like, you know, 10 days, like literally business weeks kind of thing, get it done. And I'm sitting there and hearing how, you know, well, you know what, we need to build relationships. We need to, you know, trust. So the things that are popping out in this conversation, and these are things I know, but it's different. It's relationships takes time. It's not that we've had coffee now and now we're BFFs and we're going to do all this stuff. It's like, well, you know, maybe you can do something in nine months' time. And I'm like, nine months. <laughs> like, I was thinking maybe in 30 days' time. Like, and, and maybe we can go on a journey. Maybe it looks like this. Maybe we can do these little past um, things. Prepare for actually coming together and communing. And the conversation is not what I'm used to. I'm used to, you know, again, context. I'm used to like going, okay, what needs to be done? When does it need to be done? Who do we need to pull in? All that stuff. The conversation is not like that. It is diverse. It's not just in the context of what needs to be done in nine months, right? There's stories being woven in there. There's experiences, personal experiences. Like literally it was like, let's go over there, come back here. Let's go over there, come back here. Matt is used to this, I wasn't. This was my first experience. And then at the end we're like, ah, oh, we'll do something in nine months. And I had to reframe what I'd wanted to get out of that. I got what I want, but in a very different, it looked very different. To, to what I thought it would look like. And it was amazing. Yes, so it's changed. I guess it's, 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 it's made me pause as well in, in the work I'm doing, like, and, and appreciate that, of course, I've been functioning in this Western framework, and that is not necessarily always, you know, like, there's other frameworks, and I need to be aware of them and engage with them and create space for it and allow that magic to happen by creating that space, so, yeah. <laughs> Beautiful. So impromptu as well, and yet <laughs> amazing. <laughs> uh, just, I guess, for me, that's such a powerful example of how we're all being invited to see ourselves differently. And that's really hard, because it goes down right to the, the depth of, uh, of training and identity, and I was reflecting this in the last couple of days, and um, I'm noticing that there's a predominance of, of women uh, leading in this space, and one of the, the challenges that we have, um, and this week celebrating International Women's Day, is that there are systemic imbalances and, and things that we've been creating, not just for decades, literally for centuries. 
And so we're unpacking that as, as we, we go. Uh, and we can't turn away from it. And it's really hard, I think, to empathise for a moment for an established uh, generation of business leaders, who probably a majority are men, uh, and they're being challenged by young climate strikers, they've been challenging, challenged by lots of people, and their very DNA of, of manhood, of identity, of strength is being challenged because we're seeing things from a different perspective. And now we want to talk about business from a different way. And it's really hard. And I've personally been in conversations and as a young man that happens to have European heritage in a conversation with some of these established leaders, it's very confronting. I can see they're grappling with it and they will hold on and hold on and hold on. Even though you can see in their eyes that they are seeing something from a different perspective, the, the ego and the pride and the things, it means that they're holding on. And it's not because the logic, because the science or because the compelling art or the philosophy or all of these different logics that we can use. It's not because of that. It's actually illogical. It's an emotional thing. And I think unless we kind of grapple with this and be really honest about this, then we can't take those invitations to see ourselves differently um, in the same way. And, and that's really, really tough. But the reason I bring up identity and brand is because I think Melbourne does have a strong brand internationally. And I think the way that that's evolving, the way that in this year we're going to make a vote and we're going to choose to see ourselves in a different way, regardless of what we, how we vote, we're going to choose to see ourselves in a different way. And we are evolving. And the awareness of that cultural shift and the ecological and the economic shifts that are inherent in all of these, at the end of it, we're going to end up with a different brand. What kind of brand do we choose to create together? And I guess that's my challenge back to this group and to the listeners here, uh, is what brand do we want to create together? And I'll, I'll give it a little bit more context. In two weeks, I fly across to Patagonia in Argentina. And it's a space where back in 2010, I was reading Let My People Go Serving. I think I've got the book in my bag by the founder of Patagonia here. There we go. Uh, and at that time, I was living in Gippsland, in a, you know, out of the main city, and I was trying to navigate. And I, to be honest, I felt a bit lost. And that, that book gave me a path of saying, hey, there's a different way of doing business and, and leading. So that region has had a huge influence, but the reason that I, reason I'm going there is because we're spinning out a, a different uh, initiative called the Regional Impact Trade Alliance, and basically it's about regions, economic regions, working together to create social and environmental impact. So instead of competing on eco purely profit-driven ec economic trade, we're actually inviting people to say, hey, we've got these climate and, and biodiversity expertise in this region, we can see that you've got some challenges going on there and risks and vulnerabilities that will affect your economy now and in the long term. How about we bundle this up here and support you? How about we take this knowledge, these services, these products from here and here and support you? And, how, and what can you do for us? And I guess that's the challenge that we have when we do this collective impact work is that it requires all of us to think above our organisational levels and to think about what's that collective brand as Melbourne, as Victoria, as Australia, that we are creating at this time. And it's, it's a really hard thing to grapple with, but identity evolves. Like always the elders, like First Nations elder talking about virtual elders and you know, being more tech savvy than probably all of us here in, in some ways. It shows us that we're not going back. We're going forward. So 
I'm going to do something a little bit more impromptu here. I'm actually going to pass, and I'm taking a punt here, but I think I'm probably pretty close. To, I'm going to pass the mic to who I think might be the youngest person in this circle. And I'm going to, I'm going to ask you a question. What would be your advice for business leaders in Melbourne about how you would like to see biodiversity and, and nature and country brought closer together between now and 2030? in the context of the global biodiversity framework, but making it real here, like just from your own personal experience, what would be one message that you'd share with them? Well, I'll just preface this by saying that I'm no scientist. I don't have an environmental background like the rest of you. So I'm kind of coming at this from like a different lens, but it's certainly a space that, you know, I'm extremely interested in because as a young person, like, of course, I have concerns around my future. I have concerns around, you know, what's the environment that I'm going to be a future leader in. Um, and so I guess between now and 2030, what I'd like to see from business leaders, um, I guess modeling off what I'm experiencing at Intrepid right now, having someone, you know, like Susanna, who's come in with this expertise you know, bringing in a really unique perspective to travel, you know, a sector that really probably has neglected its, in, its uh, responsibility in a lot of way for some time, tapping into a new perspective um, to really start to recognise where we can have impact in a different way and start to take some, yeah, responsibility around these things is exactly the kind of work that, you know, I want to see and I would love to see more and more corporates doing that. Um, more corporate advocacy, more collaboration, you know, between government um, and private sector, of course. Um, and, yeah, just, I don't know, keep getting, keep getting out there as a young person. Um, but, yeah, I guess that's what I'd say. Um, thank you so much for, for sharing because I, I think that is something that we're also seeing is that uh, and it was also there at COP15 as well, young people that were really elevating using their voices. And an example of that to, to, to bring uh, that into this space, Justin Trudeau, the pr Prime Minister of Canada, was making a presentation in the opening ceremony at COP15. And a group of young First Nations people from the West Coast got up and started beating their drums, literally beating their drums, dancing and, and singing. And they were protesting against a gas pipeline that was going through their country. And they had that opportunity to make sure that their voice was heard. And for me, I'm always reminded about those faces of the climate strikers and asking ourselves who we're really working for. And so on that note, I want to thank you all. I do want to keep the space open just a little bit longer in, in case there's any final questions or comments that people would like to make. So I'm going to open up perhaps to the non-official guest speakers, but to the other speakers in the space, if there are any questions or things that you'd like to bring into the conversation uh, before we start to wrap up. How about now? Okay, cool. Thanks. I was like, oh, there's something here. What an amazing group of people, Matt. Thanks for bringing us together. Um, I realised in our first question, you gave us some homework. I didn't feel like I answered, but I think you answered really well. 
which is <laughs> around our responsibility. And one of the things by 2030 we should be doing is banning leaf blowers. But anyway. <laughs> um, look at the minute. I have a, a generative invitation here around what we're trying to do, which is to create a bioregional future fund here across the two bays. And we're working with some pioneering organizations already in a co-design approach using earth equity to really uncover how we might help organisational resilience to create local economies that is community-led and bringing all of the pieces of our systems together through this particular piece of work. I just want to share that. I think there's some incredible potential here that always gets me really excited. It's an open piece at the minute um, that's moving and we're just really trying to learn fast and, and, and together. What, is, what does anybody think? Love that open invitation to collaborate and I'm happy to connect the dots afterwards to, to allow that conversation to continue. Absolutely. For those who are going to listen to this afterwards, we're literally being surrounded by three whippersnippers. <laughs> so if you can't hear us quite clearly, that's why. But let's keep persisting. Yeah, I just felt something quite heavy at my back. It's probably a rock or something from the whippersnipper. Just another day in Melbourne. Um, <laughs> I know that this um, collective and this group has come together to talk about biodiversity, about business, um, but also about the Birrarung. And the Birrarung, the, the Yarra River, is uh, one river in Australia with legal rights um, and recognised uh, in, in that capacity as uh, a living entity. And I was just wondering if the the people in this space had any thoughts um, around how that might progress these conversations and open spaces for new ideas and conversations around um, furthering the, uh, the places along the, the river that might become swimmable in the future. great I didn't even so one thing thought that pops to mind is I had no idea that the river has had living entity status and so immediately that's one thing like how aware is that awareness that it's a living entity in the middle of our city it's a really beautiful story how do we tell more how do we lift that recognition and give voice to the river and so then I immediately think about the art gallery again and the power of storytelling through visualisation and through art and even not needing to be in the art centre necessarily but maybe a partnership with the river and nature and people and more stories around creating a vision for us swimming in the river in 10 years time 
and kind of seeding that plant in everyone's mind and growing it because that's what's going to kind of create change. Yeah, and that was my thought. I'm just sorry. I'm just going to pipe in because I forgot to mention. I, I deliberately did it, but like I'm the lead um, convener for the swimmable Birrarung um, for Region Melbourne, and um, and so like exactly what you said. Like um, you know, like like I mentioned that we had the design forum in November where we asked people what are the barriers and how do we how do we activate. Um, initiatives to make this vision of a swimmable Birrarung by 2030. Um, and, and, and a key thing in there was like reconnections through storytelling. There's beautiful stories about the Birrarung over millennia, right? Um, and, and from indigenous perspective, um, and we need to tell those stories. We need people to reconnect to that living being, to, to, to just access to it and being in place and having a relationship with it. Like what you talked about really resonated to me about, you know, the mountain having legal rights and then all this cutting of trees, pesticide being put there, you'd not do that to your grandmother. And I feel like that personhood, that um, having those rights, starting to, to have relationship with the river in that context, I think will, will shift quite a lot and so part of my call to this group and to Melburnians is um, come along on this journey with us as Regen because it's a it's a Mel Melbourne thing you know it is our identity the river as Uncle Collins said the river is the archery of Melbourne what is Melbourne without the Birrarung you know so yeah what a beautiful way to to wrap up I think we'll, we'll leave it there um, and allow the conversations to, to spill on. But I think to be reminded uh, around the, the well-being of ourselves, our future, we certainly felt it during lockdowns in COVID-19. You know, you wanted to be anywhere that there was open space or, or water. Um, but I guess how we crack on with it now uh, with business and nature and, and really make a good go of it um, and I've, I keep finding myself saying 10 years as well between now and 2030, but it's not. <laughs> We've, so so that, that tick, that, sorry, that clock is, is ticking. Um, but a big thank you to all of our speakers, um, to Bernie, to Kerry, to Sean, uh, to Suzanne and uh, Ari, and all of our, our speakers and, and guests in this space. A big thank you to the M Pavilion team for supporting us today. Um, and also uh, for Regen projects, we've been involved with three different activations here in the last two weeks, but um, the weather has turned it on. It is a Friday, so it's a brilliant way to be sending a Friday. But uh, yeah, I, look, I, I think just on a, a personal note, for me, this trip to Patagonia is a really significant one because I think the, the identity around that region is really clear and, and strong and a business help make that so. Um, so what's the equivalent to see the Birrarung and to see our ecosystems getting that kind of international recognition? And what's the role of business and rangers, all of those frontline people in bringing us together into that collective story? So sometimes it's nice to add with, finish with answers. Sometimes it's nice to finish with questions and leave it up.